Nation, Rob McGregor, welcome you to a place where all kinds of phenomena flourish. Voices whisper, ancient secrets, signs and symbols are abundant. UFOs, ETs, ghosts, and even the dead move about freely. Here we meet authors, researchers, and investigators of the mysterious, the strange, and of the inexplicable anomalies that surround us. Step out of the everyday world and take a journey into the mystical underground. Welcome to the Mystical Underground. Thank you for joining us. This is Rob McGregor. And Trish McGregor. And our tech magician, John Posey. You can go to themysticalunderground.com where we make regular posts and where you can find out about our books. Our most recent nonfiction book is Phenomena, Harnessing Your Psychic Abilities. Trish's latest novel is Skin Shifters. Rob's latest novel is Tool Puzz. And we also recently co-authored a book of short stories called Outliers. Our guest today is Guy Nelson Isaacs, who's a physics educator, speaker, author, and musician. Guy who wears a lot of hats. Discovery and early fascination with holograms and some of the most fundamental questions in physics, he has sought for more than two decades to establish a connection between synchronicity, physics, and real life using research and original ideas. His most recent research has been published in the scientific journal Quantum Reports. Sky is the author of Living in the Flow, The Science of Synchronicity and How Your Choices Shape Your World, and most recently, uh, Leap to Wholeness, How the World is Programmed to Help Us Grow, Heal, and Adapt. In addition, Sky is a multi-instrumentalist and professional performer of award-winning original musical compositions. Welcome, Sky. Welcome, Sky. So, Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. So as a physicist, uh, how do you see synchronicity becoming uh, acceptable to mainstream science? W- what kind of experiments uh, can be done to prove that synchronicity is more than simply random, meaningless coincidence uh, as mainstream science uh, perceives it today for the most part? Well, there's uh, a couple different aspects to that question. One is that synchronicities need to be thought about really scientifically through a method of discernment. Not every situation is the same. So synchronicity is a different phenomenon from, say, deja vu or um, you know, other phenomena that people mm-hmm. would associate, that people wonder about. These are different things. Or they could be different things. Maybe they're not, but we don't uh, know. And most people don't think about them like really distinguishing from one to the other. So synchronicity uh, is an experience of coincidence uh, that is meaningful in some way. And in my in my experience and my view is something that might be able to be, be approached from a scientific methodology. And therefore, that's why I, I, I specifically focus on that. So to give an example of a synchronicity, one that I refer to in my first book, Living in Flow, is the story of when I was traveling in Europe and... Uh, it's the story of how I met somebody at an unusual situation. But it was so unusual and it was so specific, I was able to do some calculations and just show that it's unreasonable, really, to have a worldview that this is just a random occurrence. And uh, it's better to have a, uh, a theory that really understands it through, through our scientific language. So the story goes, I was traveling in Europe by, by backpack, and I had a good friend that I'd known for some years from high school who was traveling in Israel at the time. And we decided to try and meet up. We hadn't seen each other in some years, uh, but we decided to meet up. And the, the, the logical place was, was Greece, geographically. But we didn't have cell phones. This is before communication <laughs> of that nature. And so we didn't really have a plan, which is, which is exactly when synchronicity becomes useful, right? Yeah, you don't really, have especially plan. with traveling, too. Yeah, yeah there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of unknowns when you're traveling, mm-hmm. and that sort of plays well to the experience of coincidence. And... Uh, I ended up getting sick, and I had to adjust my plans to go home, catch a plane home back to California. So my plane was through was through Paris, and I got on a, a train, first of all, to go back to Paris. And I had about 24 hours in Paris, so I didn't want to waste the rest of my trip there, so I decided to go to the museum while I waited for my flight. So I went to the Louvre, which is the biggest museum in Paris. And in the Louvre, about halfway through the day, I'm walking through this room, and I suddenly see this person that looks just like my friend. And I, I just can't figure it out, so I'm just staring at her. 
But finally, her friend looks over and says, there's this really weird guy staring at you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it turns out we, we did connect in Paris, amazingly. And she had gotten an, an invitation a few days earlier to go to Paris with her friends. And hmm. she had almost said no because she was waiting for me to call. And I hadn't called yet. So she thought I should, if she didn't wait around in Israel, I, I, she would never reach, uh, never be able to meet me. But it turns out that by, by accepting the invitation to go to Paris with her friends, she ended up being in the right place at the right time for wow, me to meet her. Wow, that's a good one. Yeah. What are the odds on that one? <laughs> you, you know, it's, well, it's, so that's what I... Go ahead. That's what I figured out is like, you can look at this, you can ask some specific questions. Like, how many friends do I have that are close to me? And this is not, not just a random person, by the way. This is someone mm. who ended up becoming my wife. We were, oh, we were that okay. connected. So, <laughs> wow. All right. This is a real solid moment of connection. Yeah. And um, you can look at, you know, how many friends do I have total? Maybe 200 friends. How many of those might be traveling at any given moment? Maybe 10 of them. Um, how many people would be going to Paris if they were traveling? <laughs> you could look at the populations of all the most popular tourist destinations, and you can calculate what's the likelihood of Paris being mm-hmm. the one. And then what's the likelihood of going to the, the Louvre? And what's the likelihood of being in a particular room at a particular time? <laughs> At the same time, and there's all these, you know, each of these has a different type of probability you can associate. Uh-huh. And to be short about it, I just showed that it's even under the most general, generous circumstances, it's unreasonable to think that this was just a, a throw of the dice. Exactly. I think that travel, especially unplanned travel, like yeah. backpacking in Europe, I had a very similar experience myself while backpacking in Europe, uh, where uh, a friend and I were going through Spain traveling, and we kept seeing this guy from Australia over and over again, <laughs> over and over again. And uh, wherever he we went, there he would show up. Uh, not particularly friendly guy or anything, but we would just kept seeing him and say hi and move on. So meanwhile, my friend had one friend, other friend who was in Europe, but he was in, uh, he thought he was in Scandinavia somewhere, Sweden, possibly, uh, never thought, we had run into him. So we left uh, Spain and went to Morocco, and we got on this bus in Morocco. It's very chaotic. Uh, you're suddenly in a whole different cultural environment. The language we didn't understand, people addressed in jalabas, uh, and uh, just a total culture shock. And then the Arabic music was playing real loud and scratchy on the, the, the bus radio, and we, we got a seat. And uh, we look in front of us, two rows in front of us is this guy uh, from that we've seen, this Aussie we saw, kept seeing in Spain. And sitting next to him was my friend's <laughs> only God. friend who is in Europe uh, uh, traveling that he thought he was in Scandinavia. Turns out he's in Morocco and he's sitting next to the Aussie. <laughs> God. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah. So yeah. some of these travel synchros, you have to you you kind of sit back and you go, my God, what are the odds of this happening? You know, you were just talking about. Yeah, and I think what's important about synchronicity, which is often the hang-up for folks, is that they're meaningful to us, and um, that's important. You know, it doesn't have to be. You know, any situation can be have some probability associated with it, and a lot of times statisticians will say. If there's even a slight possibility of it happening, then everything does can happen. And I think that's an un, a, not a useful approach here because uh-huh. it's also not, not useful to be objective and say that this is definitely a synchronicity and this is definitely not a synchronicity. I think synchronicity is a ubiquitous um, result of meaningfulness. And it really ties into this concept of flow mm-hmm. that when you, when you approach things from an open mindset, you find opportunities for change or opportunities for solutions to your challenges that you hadn't considered previously. And those opportunities come in the form of chance encounters or mm-hmm. finding information in a book that you didn't expect. Right. And by having an open mind, we just allow those things to happen more. And I, I do want to say, I think that there is a mechanism that I term meaningful history selection, which means, which, which indicates that there is a different outcome based upon the choices you make. So that there is some sense in which it's not just psychological and perception. Mm-hmm. It's also the choices you make lead to opportunities that wouldn't have happened otherwise right. that are meaningful. But well, it's not useful to, to try and objectively say this is or isn't a synchronicity, more to look at how is this useful to me and how can I make take advantage yeah. of the time. 
Well, okay, you, you define synchronicity as a chance event that feels meaningful because it leads to an experience you're seeking to have. But synchronicity also happens when you're not seeking a particular experience. How do you explain those? Well, I do only focus on you know, a certain narrow subset of what Jung might have called synchronicity. Like, I don't talk in my books about dreams, even though I've had lots of, I, I track my dreams and I, I pay attention to them as useful information. Um, but I just try to focus on a specific type of experience that I could dissect a little bit and understand the mechanism for, maybe. Um, which doesn't mean so, that that's the only kind. Right. Yeah. So your, your experience at the Louvre was especially meaningful since that person became your wife. Yeah. Right. And it's important to realize I wasn't actually thinking, God, I hope we meet because I'd already <laughs> given up on that. Right. Yeah. There was this intention to meet, but then I completely let go of it when I realized I, I was mm-hmm. going to have to head home. So a lot of times, you know, I, I look at synchronicity in a much broader sense as a, as a neutral phenomenon. It's not positive. In, in that case, it was positive where we ended up meeting in Paris, but it's also just uh, a, a neutral phenomenon that is bringing us meaningful circumstances and the subtitle of my second book, uh, the book is called Leap to Wholeness, How the World is Programmed to Help Us Grow and Heal and Adapt. Because I think that synchronicity is the way that life weaves itself together to mm-hmm. help us grow. And if that's the purpose, then difficult challenges and obstacles can be part of that growth experience for us. And so mm. they can be called synchronicities. Yeah. That's it. Well, okay. What you're saying that, okay, synchronicity is neutral. But when I experience a synchronicity, even if I don't know what it means, I feel pleasure. You know, it pleases me. I feel connected to something larger. Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had an experience that was uh, difficult that, or painful that you later came to appreciate as part of a meaningful story or narrative in your life? Oh, sure. But what I'm saying mm-hmm. is that, you know, I, I still feel kind of I always feel a particular thrill when I experience a synchronicity, whether it's right. regardless of what it is. Right. And I think that's, that can be true. Like uh, an experience can be, a, you know, I had a broken down car once where I, I arrived at a, a destination where I was going to give a talk. And as soon as I arrived, my car broke down, Jeez. like the battery died. And I realized, okay, I have like an hour before my talk, but I was going to prepare for my talk. I wasn't going to like <laughs> fix my car. <laughs> so I, you know, there's this stress that comes up. And right. But once I realized, actually, that there's this sort of metaphor of cracking open my door and stepping out uh-huh. into the world that I did, you know, versus sitting in my car and reading my right. notes, that shift in energy actually brought me connections that I wouldn't have made otherwise and made my talk actually a whole level better with oh. the people that I was in, in community with. And so there is a sense of, um, at first, this like trepidation and frustration right. that, the car, that the problem is happening. But as soon as I saw that it was actually part of this useful narrative or, or film strip of, of time that was mm. happening, it did make me feel like I filled with a little bit of awe yeah. and trust and connection to the mm. universe. What, um, I have another question. You, you were going to ask me yeah. something. I was, as a physicist, I was wondering about the relationship of synchronicity and time because uh, time is an aspect of physics that's... Uh, Tricky. <laughs> yeah, scientists are always trying to figure out what it is. Yeah, and synchronicity is falling together in time, Jung's definition in the, in the Greek. And so time is really the essence here. If I was in the Louvre a day earlier or a day later, if right. I was in that particular room 20 minutes earlier or later, I wouldn't have met Dana, my, who's mm-hmm. my wife. Yeah. Um, so it's all about where we are and the time at which we're there. Mm-hmm. And so my research, and you can refer to a paper that was published in the journal Quantum Reports called Space-Time Paths as a Whole at the mm. end of 2020. Uh, it, it shows that to, uh, there's this way of formulating the, the mathematics of, of wave functions in not only space, but also time in a way that's, um, that's I think, fairly really new or it's like we have trouble understanding time in physics because time is so personal to us and we're immersed in it but mm-hmm. my, my paper is looking at how do we step outside of time and what we find is that time really needs to be considered as a whole there's this holistic nature to time which means that you should shift your conception of time from being like a, 
a grain of sand falling through an hourglass where you're mm-hmm. like on a single grain of sand and that's called the now. Like that's actually a limiting perspective where you're, you're like limited to the now. But actually it's more like this line that you're on, this journey from, from one time to another time. And on that journey, certain meaningful things will unfold. And you're, you have sort of a narrative that's unfolding in that conception of time. Hmm. And so this, this timeline that you're on, is, where is it going? What's the outcome that it's headed towards? And what are, what are some other outcomes that it could head towards if you make some different decisions? And those are different timelines that branch off of where you are. So it's the multiverse. <laughs> it's the multiverse, yeah. And uh-huh. it's the mathematics that I think supports that and leads to um, paying attention to what's the outcome and how is the outcome determining the path that you're on. Sky, related to that, how, okay, when you talk about the multiverse, I, I remember when I originally read, I think it was David Baum, or no, it was Mal- Michael Talbot in the Holographic Universe. Yeah. He, um, I love that book. And, um, he, okay, so with every decision. That was one of those books that got me interested in this topic, by the way. I can see why. <laughs> yeah, <me too. laughs> yeah. Um, So you make a decision, and that decision changes your timeline. Is it that simple? Um, well, like the story of me traveling through Europe, when I made the decision to go to Paris instead of go to Greece, um, what I found out later was that my friend Dana also was faced with the, with the decision of what she was going to do, whether she was going to stay and wait for my call or go to Paris herself without any knowledge of what I was doing. Uh-huh. And so the way we can look at this again is that the, the, the end point where a few days later we met in person, mm. that was the target or that was the, the final cause, if you will. I think that's Aristotle's or Plato's term <laughs> um, that, that leads retroactively in some sense to determining what paths we took. So um, her, her decision to go to Paris facilitated the outcome, which was us meeting. And if I, I had made mm-hmm. a different decision to fly out of Amsterdam. You know, maybe there would have been some other opportunity that showed mm-hmm. up in her life to go to Amsterdam. Or you know, you can't you can't predict these things, but you can look at how, based on the outcome, where we where the the goal is meaningful for us to meet, uh-huh. then what kind of what kind of trajectories or or histories or timelines are necessary to make that happen. I want to mm-hmm. uh, clarify one thing you, that you uh, said you consider synchronicity to be a neutral experience, but most of us that are interested in the synchronicity see it as something that's working for us, uh, like as a nudge that we're moving in the right direction or a warning that we're in the, uh, making, might be making a wrong choice. Um, do, you, do you see it that way or is it uh, you have another perspective? Well, I think uh, not to speak too, too broadly because I think that there are forces at work in the world. Uh, you know, difficult things happen, bad things, tragic things happen to people, and I, we don't want to be in the position of trying to explain every situation, uh, because that I think that can be hurtful and harmful to our understanding of, um, you know, what are the real complexities of being a human being and the life that we experience. But I will say that, you know, from a scientist's perspective, I want to understand the simplest cases, like when I am safe generally speaking, and I'm traveling through Europe and, and trying to make a plan to meet somebody, how is it useful? You know, what kind of mindset can I have to get out of frustration? Like when I'm sick, I might be frustrated. Like, oh, I got to cut my trip short. I'm going to miss my meeting with Dana. Um, how do I shift out of that frustrating place mm-hmm. and back into a mindset of maybe gratitude and mm-hmm. excitement, yeah. and optimism, openness, mm-hmm. openness, uh, which mm-hmm. allows these, you know, the things to actually work out in my favor? So I would say that it is neutral, and it often shows up as positive for us because that's when we often notice it. Um, but if really it comes down to are are you as a human being, are you aligned with what you sort of what your ego wants in life? And you know I'm, I'm going to try and get that car or that house, or I'm going to mm-hmm. try and meet this person because it sir it makes me feel good about myself. Or are you aligned with your underlying you know desire to live a full, um, open-hearted life? to really challenge yourself and to grow. And I think when we, that's what I, I would say that Cosmos is trying to reflect to us, opportunities to grow. And so the mm. more we can align with that intention, then we can really start to see synchronicity as a useful tool to help us grow. And this is why I think that things like climate change or some of the other challenges like uh, economic inequity and 
uh, social injustice in, in our communities, some of these really deep questions are, are stemming from uh, or could be helped by an ability to more live in flow by the individuals in our society. When we make choices that are aligned with our growth and healing versus trying to make ourselves feel safer in the world or, or, or richer, you know, this shift in, in mentality actually leads us to have more synchronicities, which help us solve some of these problems in a meaningful mm-hmm. way. So you see uh, synchronicity as a means of allowing us to move into the flow, this higher sense of awareness? Or do you, do you have to be in the flow to experience synchronicity? Yeah, I think synchronicity can can lead to flow, and, and in the flow you experience more synchronicity. Right. Yeah, it's sort of synergistic. Yeah. I use this uh, acronym, the LORAX, L-O-R-R-A-X. And that stands for to listen to the moment. This is where you're like listening objectively and mm-hmm. paying attention to what are the people that are showing up in your life or what are the opportunities that you have, even in the face of a, of a problem. Like let's say you're, you're being let go from your job. You're going to listen mm-hmm. carefully to that situation and see what opportunities are coming to me or what, how could this be? As a result of that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you listen, you open your mind, that's the O, and then you reflect on it over time and, and see, are there some threads of meaning here that I can, I can learn from or connect to? And that might give me a sense of a different way to think about the situation, that I might have to release some of my preconceived notions, my attachments, how I thought things were going to go. So listen, open, reflect, release, and then from there I can act. Uh, and my okay. action will be informed by the situation. And then X is to not give up. All right, but suppose you experience like a mind-blowing synchronicity. And it, here's an example. Uh, in 1987, Rob and I were traveling in Venezuela, where I was born. And we were in the airport. And at that time, Colombia was, there was a lot of drug trafficking between Colombia and Venezuela. And so there are all these soldiers in this room that we have to go through with our bags. They've all got, you know, huge guns. And the guy in front of us looked like a, a businessman, just had a briefcase. One of the soldiers came up to him and said, Open it, you know, open that up. So the guy opens it up and everybody in line leans forward, you know, kind of expecting to see a load of drugs in there. Instead, he has one book. It's called Fevered. And it was written, I wrote it under a pseudonym. <laughs> First of all, the title perfectly described, you know, the whole situation. Wow. But I, it wasn't like, I couldn't even tap this guy on the shoulder and say, hey, that's my book, you know, because it was uh-huh. a pseudonym. So what what was that, you know? I mean, I, I was wow. so blown away. I didn't, that is my blowing. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, it was so. It's such a tense situation uh, that we we're in there, and these <coughs> these ki- these were kids, like sixteen yeah. years old, with uh, submachine guns, you know, on this other side of this table. And this guy is in a three-piece suit, and he's about <laughs> six five. He looks different from everybody else, and that's the only time we ever saw him. We never saw him on the airplane. <laughs> Don't know what happened to him. He just opens it, and he's traveling with a briefcase with only Trisha's book in it. <laughs> That's a great story. I, it I is. No I mean, it's it's you, stuck with I'd me all these years. <laughs> well, so there is this, um, you know, Carl Jung used this notion of symbolic consciousness mm-hmm. and the collective right. unconscious. And, uh, I think that this is a really important notion that um, the language of synchronicity is symbolism. Right. So people will come into our lives not because they themselves are necessarily um, are people we need to meet or know, but because they represent something that we need to learn uh-huh. and grow from. And so there's a symbolism. And I, in a loose way, I'm speaking speculative, speculatively now, that the notion of wholeness that comes out of my work in space and time is maybe related to this notion of symbolism, where you know a person with a book as a whole, that particular person with that particular book represents something to you Mm-hmm. That is independent of the physical molecules of that person. It's there's something cognitive, the the the, the symbolism that, of what they represent that is meaningful. And I think that this is sort of its own space, its own cognitive symbolic space that is primary to the physical workings of of the laws of nature. Mm-hmm. That, so so that people and objects in the physical world are actually um, showing up in the world in a, in a way that reflects the symbolic right. nature that's underneath. Hmm. Yeah. That's an, yeah, that's, that's an interesting way of looking at it. So then I have to reflect on this for another 30 <laughs> years. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, so, and, and to, to, to complete that picture, um, I don't think that we can get consciousness out of the physical world. I don't think we can sort of no. show how it just emerges. I think we actually have to take the tradition from Hinduism, uh, the yoga philosophy that consciousness is the ground of everything. Consciousness mm-hmm. comes first. The first mm-hmm. thing we know is that we're aware of the universe. And inside of that awareness, we can describe the laws of physics. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of switching around the, the causality, which comes first and which comes second. Okay, you you mentioned I'm sorry. You mentioned a process called Fourier transform. I, I may not have pronounced that right, but what is that? Yeah, or what is it? Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful mathematical technique which is used to describe patterns in the world, and uh, it's it's what led me into an interest in holograms and fractals and um, and pattern analysis when I was in college, and I, I built a hologram in, in a lab in college as part of the, the, the curriculum at school at Berkeley, and it really uh, blew my mind. And what's beautiful about a Fourier transform is it's a way of saying, if you think about music, for instance, which is a big field of interest for me, if you take a signal from your instrument or from your voice and you do a Fourier transform on it, you are returned a signal that has to do with the frequencies. So now you're looking at the spectrum from low frequencies like the bass to the high frequencies like the high end. And hmm. no longer does your, does your music file have any kind of time associated with it. It's now ordered in a different way, low frequency uh. to high frequency. And people use this in, in technology to modify the frequencies. So you can get rid of the high frequencies and you right. can save some. You can reduce the data size. But, and when you convert it back to, this, to, the, to the sound domain, you can still hear the song just with some of the high high frequencies are removed. Hmm. But what you're doing is also you're, you're modifying the song as a whole. So when you change, make changes in this thing that we call the Fourier domain, you're changing the, the song as a whole in the time domain. Huh. And this is where the notion of wholeness or holisticness of time comes in, where you can make changes in one domain that affect the entire space or time domain of the signal. Oh. Hmm. So how, how is this connected to... Explain how this would be... How, how synchronicity is connected in terms of frequencies and connectedness in that sense. Yeah, well, think of this, this example. Here's the connection. If light is traveling through space and time, we know that it travels in a sort of a special way. It travels at the speed of light, right? Everyone, mm-hmm. everyone can sort of make that statement. But what does that mean? Well, if light's traveling from the sun to the earth, it takes eight minutes or so to do that from someone's perspective on earth. But there's this really important and sort of hard to visualize point that for light itself, there is no sense of time or space because those things uh, sort of contract all the way according to the laws of relativity in this way that they become sort of meaningless. They, they, the, space, the space that light travels is always exactly equal to the time it takes to do so mm-hmm. based on the speed of light. And so we say that the, the interval between light leaving the sun and light landing on Earth is, is exactly <clears throat> zero. In physics, it terms it's a Lorentz invariant interval of zero. And what what I point to, what comes out of this research, is that that really has something to do with, you can't really, if something is zero units long, then you can't really talk about the beginning and the end as separate things. And so then you're looking at the beginning point of light leaving the sun and the end point of light arriving on Earth, which are to us very clearly different things, uh-huh. in some sense are a single event. And so that path is really to be seen as a whole. It's one whole element. And mm. synchronicity is kind of, just to jump a little bit, I'm not going to rigorously make the connection, but synchronicity is a, is a type of event where you have an end point or an outcome mm-hmm. who, which determines what path needs to be taken to get there. So there's a wholeness to the, to the timeline of our synchronicities in the same way that there's a wholeness to the timeline of light traveling from sun to earth. And if you were to break that wholeness by, like, observing the light halfway, that would be a completely different timeline in, in the mechanics mm. of the Fourier transform. In the same way that it would be a completely different timeline in, in synchronicity if, uh-huh. if, uh, if a different, different synchronicity occurs. So there's this connection based on the timeline model of time uh-huh. versus the hourglass of sand dropping through time. Mm. Sky... Uh, in Leap to Wholeness, you have a chapter called Synchronicity and the Holographic Universe. And in that chapter, you have a story about a friend, uh, Martha, uh, which is a good example of like a small synchronicity that 
was nonetheless uh, meaningful uh, to Martha. Uh, do you remember that one? Can you tell That's us? That's a pretty cool story too. Is this about the ring? Yeah. Right. That's the, the, yeah, the yeah, yeah. Yeah. She didn't know what it kind of what it was made of, right? Yeah. Yeah, and um, so Martha had this ring that she'd had for a while, and she'd forgotten what kind of stone it was, and it was a blue stone. So she decided after a few weeks of thinking about it to write to her jeweler and she wrote an email with a photograph of the stone. But she didn't hear back from the jeweler that day and she went to the nail salon to get her nails done. <coughs> and at the salon, her, her um, nail practitioner asked her if she had a stamp card because you know she wanted to get stamps for being there and get credit. Mm -hmm. And so she reaches in her purse. She doesn't really care about the stamp card, but she reaches in her purse and she pulls out a card and it's not the stamp card for the salon. It's the business card for her jeweler. <laughs> and on the back, it says the words blue topaz, handwritten. And she remembers right away that that is the stone on my finger. And so she had made an effort to get the information by writing to her jeweler. Uh -huh. But the information came to her in a very different way because she got into flow. She went to the nail salon. She uh -huh. reached in her purse. The person asked her to. And then she found the information. And so it's a great metaphor or, or example that we can use to look at the rest of our life and say, what are all the times when I ask for information or, or success in some way? And it comes to me in an unexpected form. Mm -hmm. outside, outside of normal cause and yeah. effect. Right. But, right. But there there's could sort be of a meaningful cause and effect. Right. Uh, but yeah, but there could be cause and effect if you think the cause is coming from a deeper part of ourselves uh, uh, outside of the everyday world. I guess. Well, the, the way I think of it is it, it is not causality in the sense of, you know, how we think about causality yeah. as cause effect physically, but there is a sense in which that I think we can eventually do experiments where we control the <coughs> meaning. So the meaning for my friend Martha was the need that she had to answer this question for herself. Right. That was and her intention. We, her intention, yeah. or, you know, yeah. I think it's word, genuine, urgent need mm -hmm. or intention. Mm -hmm. And when you have that, if you can control that in a, in a psychological experiment, then you can look at, okay, so I set up these people with, with a similar type of need, and then I set them loose on the city or loose in some <laughs> library or whatever. Are they able to find the information they need in unexpected ways in order to meet their need? And you can't control how they find the information, but mm -hmm. your criteria is whether they do or not. And then That'd that would be, be pretty cool. Meeting. Right. Have you done that, that experiment? people it's outside of my my expertise you know so uh, I, I could do it myself but I, I, I think it could be done um, the way that to answer the question you first asked a while back that the way that we can test this in a lab or make sure that this theory is mm -hmm. consistent is looking at the physics itself and you know my paper uh, requires that the physical laws of quantum mechanics have certain properties in other words certain interpretations of quantum mechanics right. are valid in my view and certain ones are not and there are experiments that have been done that support this or are consistent with this. So what we look at is doing experiments in a lab with light and lasers that, that reflect basic principles. And if we can confirm the basic principles that are consistent with this model, then we get more, more confident that maybe, maybe there's something here to investigate hmm. further. Sort of indirect evidence. Well, Scott, but I think like, like we talked about in the beginning, it's like finding a model that's better than the one we have uh -huh. is preferable. Hmm. Um, maybe uh, in Bernie's coincidence project, you could give everybody assignment, <laughs> and we could perform this experiment you, for you. Why don't you explain what that is? Yeah, uh, Bernie Bernard. For people who don't know, Bernard Bateman is a, a psychiatrist out of the University of Virginia, and he's the first guy since Jung, I think, the first psychiatrist to seriously undertake a study of of coincidences or synchronicity. And this is how I met Sky was through Bernie's. Coincidence Project. So, yes, and it's been a great group of people, and I think that's a wonderful idea to um, set, to do that experiment with a group of people that's all that's all right. thinking about it. In this, especially people who understand, you know, who experience a lot of synchronicities and who understand it. And I can think of a few folks in that group that are psychologists and, and could think of how right. to control the experiment. Yeah, why not use it? Yeah, that'd be great. I, used I like to that idea a lot. <laughs> yeah. I, I worked as a newspaper reporter for about uh, 10, 11 years, and synchronicities happened all the time to me in terms of 
I would get an assignment, I would have to make contacts to uh, sources for the story, and they would come to me in unusual ways rather than uh, a normal process of finding a person. I would talk to somebody who would uh, give me a clue uh, that would somehow lead to something else and uh, that would mm-hmm. be, that would lead, lead me to uh, a source that I needed. And uh, this would happen over and over again. And in fact, uh, editors sometimes would say, how did you make that connection, you know? And it was like they thought I was hiding something from them. It was just, you know, I couldn't say coincidence, but that's basically what it was. So it was, that I mentioned that because that was kind of a, a format uh, for me, just going to work and being given these assignments that synchronicities would appear over and over again. Well, see, that's why I think, like, if we think about this in the model of um, governance, you know, how can we be govern ourselves better in a democracy by utilizing the the coincidences or the unexpected nature mm-hmm. of things rather than, you know, the current model is is like a waterfall, if you're familiar with software project management, where you sort of make a plan way up front, you design your strategy, you execute the strategy over a period of time, you, you basically try to make sure everything fits into your model of, of, uh, of, of your plan mm-hmm. versus what's much more prom- uh, common now which is agile methodology, where you, you have a different, you set up stories, you set up goals of narratives, and then you look at how situation unfolds from all the different stakeholders in order to bring about a, a resolution of your, your, your goals. But it's much more in relationship to the situation as it unfolds. And so, uh, you know, just like you said, you don't know where the solutions are going to come from. And you have to, I think it, it can be better if we, if we are prepared to make use of those situations when they occur rather than like have our minds set already. Right, right, yeah. Uh, Sky, in one of your books, I'm not sure which one it was, that you use a term called inner activism in reference to social, social change. Uh, could you explain uh, how that works? <laughs> yeah, um, let me think about what that term means to me. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, I think that ultimately synchronicity is a process that is helping us grow, like I've said a few times. And that, that means um, we're going to have the best outcomes when we really are uh, looking at who we are and how we can personally um, expand ourselves and our presence in the world in a positive way. Mm-hmm. And so interactivism is looking at the problems in our lives and in the world around us as a reflection of ourselves. And rather than getting... Um, seeing, you know, racism or economic inequality or um, corruption as problems that other people are doing because they're not, you know, they're not behaving the way that I would want them to. Um, always seeing the reflection in our, in our own selves and how we can learn from um, situations uh, that are happening in the world and, and uh, grow in the process. So, you know, interactivism is can can be a way of um, making change that takes advantage of what you were just saying, Rob, mm-hmm. by being aware of unusual, right. unexpected situations, um, and and controlling our own reactions to things, so that we become less reactive and we become catalysts of change rather than catalysts of reactivity. Hmm. Well, um, what in one of the questions I had for you? Let's see, where is it? oh. Um, how, how does, how, okay, you say that our emotional filters have a big influence on our life direction. What if I don't think of myself as an emotional person? How does that apply to me? Well, I think emotion, I am emotional, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that there's, there's maybe some language barriers that we have with those terms okay. that we think of emotions as, you know, highly emotional people maybe, or as a you know, uh-huh. big expression of emotion. But emotion is something that's it's a fundamental part of our daily lives. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever I have a preference, if I like watching certain movies and right. don't like watching other movies, that's an emotion. Yeah. Um, if, I, if I'm comfortable having a conversation with my boss at work or I'm not comfortable having that conversation with them, that's an emotion. Mm-hmm. And so understanding our emotions as tools to help us navigate the world is, is really important. And ultimately... Um, our, our emotions can get in the way of uh, success with projects that we're working on. And this is where uh, I think flow 
is really useful. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're avoiding an emotion because it's uncomfortable, we also might be blocking ourselves from experiencing flow. Because if I don't want to have this conversation with a colleague at work because it's uncomfortable, but if I had that conversation, it might lead to an opening up right. and a, a more vulnerability or more connection that led to a whole new way that we could do the project together. Mm. And so that would be, that's where the flow is leading. And so how this would unfold is I'm at work and I'm walking to the office and to get my, my printout at the printer. And suddenly the person I'm, I'm sort of having a conflict with is right mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we bump into each other in a way that sort of faces me with, you know, should I bring this up or not? Right. Or is there, some, is there some way in which I could bring this up where it would be easier in this moment? And so taking advantage of those opportunities um, is a way of uh, navigating our emotions. I think synchronicity gives us opportunities to navigate our emotions in a healthy way that gets us back into flow. Well, I think you should teach this in Congress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so how Yeah, does... so I mean, to, to get back to the, the, yeah. the point of inner activism, right. you know, one of the practices I do is uh, calling Congress because I think that I don't know, you know if I'm having an impact directly by, by calling my congressman and calling uh-huh. other congressmen and, and, mm-hmm. and letting other, other people in my community know how they can call and why they would call their congressman about a particular mm-hmm. bill uh, that I care about. But what I, what I associate with the experience of synchronicity is that when we invest in something that's of value to us, that's when we generate synchronicities yeah, that happen. So by taking intended effort it's not, there's no action that's wasted. It's building momentum towards mm-hmm. the, the, the bigger picture of what we want to create in the world. Mm-hmm. So related to uh, emotions, how does the experience of grief in your motto provide a way to work towards healing political polar, polarization that uh, we're experiencing now or addressing uh, misinformation or conspiracy theories? Well, grief is one of those uncomfortable emotions. Uh, disappointment is another word you could use for less intense situations where you're you're disappointed by something that somebody did, or you feel betrayed mm-hmm. by their, you know, they're not aligning with you anymore. They said they were going to agree with you, and they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we, you know, when we recognize, first of all, like I said, being able to not let that block us, you know, feel, be able to feel the grief. If it, you know, underneath the grief might be. Um, or underneath fear that you feel might be, there might be fear in your way, fear Mm -hmm. in in the way of like acknowledging that I feel hurt by this person or acknowledging Uh that I feel let down or disappointed. Um, So when we can acknowledge these, these underlying feelings, they start, they, they dissipate in us or we at least we can feel them and move on Uh and get back into a flow state. And um, when we don't do that well, what what often happens is we redirect our feelings in the wrong way. So, if I'm feeling really frustrated by something that's happening at work and I come home and I'm with my daughter and she asked me for help with her homework, if I'm feeling frustrated by this work experience, I might be kind of short-tempered with my daughter. Mm-hmm. And that creates a whole dynamic at home where there's tension that actually has nothing to do with the situation at home. Yeah. So it's this, this misdirecting our emotions because we haven't actually moved through them. And that's where uh, in, in, in Congress as well, I think, you know, when someone's uh, dealing with emotions of frustration, which I'm sure happens all the time. You know, how do you not let that get in the way of um, taking advantage of opportunities to to be adaptable and resilient mm-hmm. yeah. to change? Of course, we're talking about Congress here, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that uh, what, what we're really talking about here in, in, in a degree is also making decisions both from the head and from the heart and from the uh-huh. body. And right. that these are yeah. three different ways of, of experiencing the world that are all important. And when we have embodied cognition or um, recognize when we're feeling upset so that we don't let that get in the way of right. healthy communication, these are things that we need to teach our kids and we need to be using in our governance all the time. So does this go along with the filters you talk about? Yes, I, I wanted to ask about that. Uh, could you explain, uh, just start out with the basics here. You, you mentioned filters a lot. Could you explain uh, what, what the filters are and how they limit us? Yeah, filters are simply um, the thoughts and the feelings and the body sensations that we're talking about, which are programmed in us or mm-hmm. have from our past mm-hmm. have been programmed into us. So if somebody comes up to me and says, hey, I really like your haircut, 
and I've been having a hard day, like making myself look presentable for my, my, <laughs> my meeting at work, then I might not be able to hear them. Like I'll think they think I, they like my hair, but my hair looks terrible. I might reflect <laughs> the compliment and say, Oh, you know, I just threw it all together when I walked out the door this morning. Yeah. So we sort of make up ways to not take credit for things. Um, or sometimes not take the blame, but these are thoughts that we're having based on our own experience, which make it hard to see the wholeness of what the other person is trying to express. Right. And so it comes down to this idea of wholeness that I talk about in, in, in the scientific aspect mm-hmm. and in the personal aspect, that we are whole beings, and we're, when our communications, we're receiving whole information from other people. The, the wholeness of, of that communication would be what's their intent, what do they say, what are they trying to communicate to me, Mm-hmm. And if I can only hear a portion of that, I'm filtering out a lot of that, just in the same way that my sunglasses filter out a lot of the sunlight to let me mm-hmm. see more, you know, a certain view of the world, then I'm going to be seeing the world as I see it, as I am, not so much as it really is. And I might interpret something my daughter or my, my partner says to me through my own lens versus what they're really trying to get me to right. know, understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so this, this can get in the way of synchronicity where somebody might, this is, comes back to the Lorax process, listening to life, really seeing the whole information, you know, what's, what's present in this opportunity and opening our minds to that versus a lot of times synchronicities come up for me where I, I say, oh, I don't want to do that. Like, let me tell you another story of synchronicity here. I was uh, in graduate school and I commuted about three hours on by bus to get to school. Wow. So when they proposed having a camping trip, I was like, that sounds really fun, but I can't do it because I live too far away and I've got a mm-hmm. young daughter. So I just assumed I couldn't do it. And so that's the, I'm listening to the situation and I'm closing my mind, right? Um, and that was a filter I had. Like my filter is I live too far away. It's too difficult. My daughter needs me. I can't do it. Uh-huh. So those thoughts, the thoughts made it impossible for me to see all the information that was there until a couple of days before the event, somebody asked me, are you going to come on the camping trip? And I said, <laughs> well, where is it? <clears throat> and they said, well, it's up at, um, what's it called? Sugarloaf Ridge, which is by my house. So they were going to get in the car, drive three hours north to come to where I live. And go wow. camping, Ten minutes from my house. Huh. So that's, that's what I mean by wholeness, right? There's all this information I didn't even see because I didn't, right. I didn't look for it. That's the wholeness we're trying to get access to. And in order to get that, we have to let go of the filter of what we believe to be true in the beginning. But also, you didn't ask the question, where is it, right? Right. That's how I get out of my filter, uh-huh. peel back the filter to allow more information to come in. Hmm. The filter is telling me, my mind is telling me, you don't even need to ask. You know it's not going to work. Like, how often yeah. do we have that perspective? I just know it's not going to work. Yeah. I'm going to try. Yeah. That's a filter. Yeah, that can be a damaging filter, too. <laughs> And one of the things I do in, my, in the workshops I lead uh, on a monthly basis is um, look at the filters we have and name them. So we look at mm. the, the thoughts that we're having, like, this is never going to work, I'm too busy, uh-huh. or uh, the feelings I have, like, I'm disappointed, it, it never works out for me, it's unfair, it's right. sad. And then the, the bodily sensations, like, what does it feel like? Oh, um, kind of tense, kind of a, a fear of missing out, mm-hmm. kind of, uh, you know frustrated and you know, hard to relax and, and look at all those together and say, well, I'm going to name that filter. I'm going to, that's the part of, that's how I feel when I'm feeling, um, it's never going to work. Like that would yeah. be the name of my filter. It's never going to work. And so now I have, every time I have that experience, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm feeling like it's never going to work. <laughs> that's a clue that maybe I should ask a little deeper question. Where's the camping trip? Interesting. Huh. And then I get more information and I realize it unfolds synchronistically. Yeah. Hmm. So, Sky, do you think uh, we create our own realities, um, or is through there, these thoughts and feelings? And yeah. Or are there other factors involved in our creating our realities outside of us? Yeah, I think there are other factors involved. I think there's a lot. It's a, it's a really important question, and it comes uh, brings up a lot of issues around language. Like I, I hear a lot of people talk about, you know, there's infinite possibilities. But just from a language point of view, I can tell you there's not infinite possibilities. Like not, well, actually, it's the word is everything is possible. Not everything is possible. And I can tell you <laughs> some things right now that are not possible. Just, you know, I'm, well, I'm like in what? California right <laughs> Tell now. us. <laughs> yeah. I'm You're in California right now, and I'm not going to be a foot taller than I am right now yeah. tomorrow. You know? 
or I'm not going to be in New York, you know, by the right. by the end of this phone call. So we, we don't need to have everything or anything be possible in order to have better lives. Mm-hmm. I think what we're trying to get at there is that a lot more is possible than we realize. And that's what I think this work is showing us. How do we peel back a filter that's limiting our perception of what's possible and see that, oh, yeah, on this camping trip, it is actually possible for me to join because they're coming to Sugarloaf. And okay, so that's excuse the opening me, just, up of possibilities. Okay. That that if you're talking about bodily sensations too as a filter. Give, give give us an example of what a bodily sensation as a filter would be. Well, like if I'm at work, let's say another example, and someone comes up to me and um, starts to give me information I already know, and I feel this is sort of ego tension, like they're trying to make themselves oh, okay. look good by telling me about something, and I'm like, uh-huh. I don't know how to quite handle that. So my thought might be, um, they don't really respect me. Mm-hmm. I think they know more than me. I, my emotion might be um, fear that they're going to misjudge me, right. and I might not, might not get a promotion or something, you know. And mm. my bodily sensation might be, um, you know, my throat gets tight. I, I can't really speak. I can't find uh-huh. the words. My chest gets tight. My my knees might shake because I'm thinking like I have to say something. I have to be in conflict with them. So there's these different ways our bodies react to the to the mm. fear or the sensations that that clue us into that we're having a filter reaction huh. so let's say you have uh, you know that feeling of that your stomach is kind of caving in <laughs> yeah doing flip-flops <laughs> yeah so all right so you feel that so then you have to do what you have to ask yourself okay why am i feeling this and how can i change this feeling and then, yeah, once you recognize the filter, then the body sensations remind you that you're having that experience. Uh-huh. So when, you're, when you, your belly does somersaults again, you can look at your life and say, okay, wait, what just happened? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I just got an email from my client, and they, I just read it, and I, I didn't notice, but as soon as I read that email, my belly started doing somersaults. Uh-huh. So I can so connect it back to, to the actual yourself. experience. Okay, so you connect it with the experience, and then, okay, I see what you mean. Yeah, that's pretty and cool. that clues you into um, oh, maybe there's a synchronicity here. Maybe there's something, maybe it's a positive synchronicity, maybe it's a negative synchronicity, maybe it's just a chance to become more aware of how my situations are mm. affecting me. Hmm. Uh, do, do you think the awareness of synchronicity has something to do with how often we experience synchronicities? Because some people uh, who don't seem to be particularly aware of uh, meaningful coincidences don't say they never they never occur to them or very rarely one person wrote me this long email once he's uh, he said I've had one synchronicity in my life and he went on to explain this thing that made no sense to me and I couldn't <laughs> see any synchronicity in it but he, it, it was very important to him um, mm-hmm. so so well I try I try and normalize synchronicity and take it away from the mystical uh-huh. um, because I think people are looking a little, maybe a little too deeply and trying too hard to find them. Um, a lot of folks can relate to like somebody important in their lives that they met, like their their spouse or a good friend. You know, how how do they end up being at the right place in the right time to meet them? Yeah. Like um, like my story with meeting Dana at the Louvre. Right. Or how did you end up in that particular job, which led to you meeting that particular person, which changed your life in this. You know, mm-hmm. maybe sim- maybe simple but profound way. So I think that when you look at synchronicity as the way that we're being woven, and the flow is the way that we're being woven into each other's lives, then uh, you start to look a little bit more leniently at every one of the connections we have. And how is it that I end up at the coffee machine at the same time that this right. other person is there? And and just how does that set me up for an experience that I could have that would be, mm-hmm. would be beneficial to me? I think you definitely have to run this thing through the coincidence project. <laughs> Give them all an assignment. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it would be fascinating. Yeah, we'll track it. Track yeah. It some way with data. So when you're studying synchronicity, do you, do you ever have synchronicities in that process? Or are they more prolific? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I try and track or take notes when I do, um, but it's more like it happens so much that it's it's a flow. I, I'm more tracking <laughs> right, when, uh-huh. when I'm in the flow and try and stay um, 
you know, I think synchronicity is a way in which the cosmos is responsive to us. Yeah, and so it's if a, we can yeah. look at the response of the of the situations around us, how how are things going in our projects, in our relationships? I think our relationships are a good indicator of how well we are aligned in flow and paying attention to synchronicity. So um, that that said, it is a daily experience, and there are ways, there are stories I have of synchronicity actually helping me with my research. Mm, I'm so, sure. Um, you know, having um, I once was on a uh, this is kind of an odd story, but I was on a broadcast that had a um, was it was a, a business coaching broadcast for um, for women, and the title of the broadcast was "It's All in the Bra." And bra stood for business, revenue, and assets. And I just thought it was a funny title, and I was happy <laughs> to be on the show. And uh, we, we had the interview. But when, when something is sort of funny like that and stands out in my mind, it's sort of, I think about it, it's the Lorax process, right? Listen, uh-huh. open, and reflect. So I spent a lot of time, you know, a year and three months reflecting on that story, and that title <laughs> of that show, without having any other information. And then one day, you know, a year and three months later, I took a, a nap in the middle of the day where I was just lightly sleeping and I had a dream where I could see the mathematics I was working on that has to do with bras and cats in quantum mechanics. There's these things oh, called God. bras and cats. And the cat is like the state of the world and the bra is like the state of the measuring device or the person uh-huh. who did how, how you end. The, the, the cat the is the beginning of the timeline and the bra is the end of the timeline. Hmm. So looking at this notion of timelines, this notion of it's all in the bra made a lot of sense where it, it all depends on how you end the timeline to determine what happens along the way. Hmm. So that took, you know, over a year for that to make sense to me, but it did seem to like have this meaningful nature to that narrative. Huh. Yeah. That is pretty cool. And so, so in that case, I'm looking at, you know, the, the types of stories that come into my life, right. the type of narrative that's happening. And is there a way that it helps me see a bigger context to the mm-hmm. situations I'm in? Hmm. How about as a musician, does synchronicity and flow play a role? Yeah, I would say so. Um, I, you know, I, I like to think of my life as a musician being sort of the practice of flow. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, being, I, I don't want to just be someone who gets really in my head about synchronicity and like trying right. to analyze it, come up with equations without actually, you know, what's the implication? How does that, how does it impact our lives? Um, how does it change the way we think about the world we live in so that we become more, um, maybe more confident, maybe more grounded, maybe more um, uh, loving and, and um, compassionate with each other, understanding of people's differences. Our dog, Nigel, yeah, um, came and laid down next to us telling us it was an hour. Yeah, he always he's, knows our, he's our time he, clock. He, he's like a time clock. <laughs> he knows when an hour is. <laughs> right, oh, that's I, great. It's, it's, yeah. it's a delight. Yeah, this has been uh, this is fantastic. Yeah, uh, we really liked your book, Sky. I mean, and now I've got to go read the Flow book. <laughs> I started looking through that one too, and it's pretty interesting. So, how can people get in touch with you? Your, your website. And, you? Well, I'm available at synchronicityinstitute.com, and I run workshops uh, every month uh, on, called the Living in Flow Synchronicity and Wholeness Workshop. Mm. Are those and online or in person? Those are online. Okay. Yeah, they're live, but they're online. And I also do have a uh, an asynchronous course called the Living and Flow course that's a video <laughs> series. Um, and I have these two books and I'll, uh, quite a bit of content on YouTube and, and those for this for free, so people can follow and read my blog and things. Okay. Great. Thank you. Oh, thanks yeah, for coming. Yeah, this has been on. fascinating, and I hope we hope to see you Saturday. Thank cool. you. I look it's forward cafe. to it. <laughs> Thanks for putting this broadcast together with me on it. I appreciate it so much. This is great. Well, thanks so much, Sky. This is wonderful. Good talking to you. All right. Take care. See you Saturday. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining the Mystical Underground. Visit www.themysticalunderground.com for the latest blog post and book info. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Google Podcast or your favorite podcast app. Listen to the podcast at podcast.themysticalunderground.com. Follow Trish and Rob on Instagram at Trish and Rob McGregor. Follow us on Twitter at The Mystic Cast. 
send email to podcast at themysticalunderground.com. And until next week, thank you for listening and stay mystical. There's a lot of audio noise in the background. Is that just it's the rain. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, it's wow, really pouring here. Powerful. And, yeah, yeah, it's hot and sunny here. Let me like close it. Yeah, okay, wait. Let, let Rob close this door. <laughs> yeah, it really just started. So interesting. Yeah. Oh, now it's hitting. Yeah, I talk, I talk in the book, actually, about the weather and how our, our filters are like the weather. Skylight. But, skylight. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. like the weather. There's the, the the rainstorm that we feel on a given day, which is a certain set of thoughts and feelings, uh-huh. and then just the hot sunny day is different. You know, it's a good metaphor. Yeah, it is.